This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Journal Club number 7, Kratom Use and Mental Health with Dr. Mark Swagger. People who are pushing this narrative that uh, Kratom's deadly, and if you take it, you know, you're really risking your life, I think they're eliciting drug hysteria for other reasons. Dr. Swagger is a clinical psychologist and substance use researcher at University of Rochester. One uh, paper that uh, our guest, Dr. Mark Swagger, worked on, Kratom Use and Mental Health, a Systematic Review. And this came out in Drug and Alcohol Dependence in 2018. Yeah, and we have one of the authors, Dr. Mark Swagger, on today. Welcome, Welcome Dr. Swagger. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk about this. Yep. Definitely. So, um, I, I'll just jump in here real quick. But So it looks like this was one of the potential first comprehensive lit reviews, right? And it was looking at 1960, uh, January 1960 through July 2017. Um, yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah, that's right. We were just trying to find whatever we could at the time, which I guess we started writing it in 2017. Just wanted to see what was out there, essentially. We didn't find much, right? Like, so at the time, there wasn't a whole lot available in human studies. There was certainly plenty available uh, for in the pharmacology literature for animal studies. And, um, you know, quite a bit was known about Kratom. How are we pronouncing it today? Because I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they told me to pronounce it Kratom because every everybody, uh, the other the guys that run Kratom Science call it Kratom because they've been, you know, in, yeah. into it for a long time. And then I started, I started making videos for YouTube. Here's how you make Kratom tea. And they said, uh, just pronounce it Kratom because we started to get comments like, "What's Kratom? What is that?" Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so I mean. Yeah. I guess since I don't pronounce Paris Paris, I'll just uh, go with uh, Kratom. <laughs> I mean, I suppose there's some value. I think that is true. Like, I think in um, Malaysia, it's pronounced Kratom by a lot of people. But I, uh, I'm so used to calling it Kratom uh, that I, I guess I'll just do that for yeah. now and until I learn a little better. Um, but um, yeah, we were so we were just looking for whatever we could find uh, in terms of uh, observational studies in humans and. And we found, I guess it was roughly 15 studies and then had to eliminate a couple due to, um, due to uh, the studies not really containing the information you need to be able to evaluate them, mm-hmm. which is a big problem. I'd love if we could get into this a little bit. It's just the way the information has flowed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what I said yeah. in the beginning. I appreciated that you had called out drug hysteria because I think that a lot of you know, a lot of people in this sort of controlled substance space recognize uh, drug hysteria as, you know, like uh, assuming the worst, banning and asking questions later. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it was a, it, you know, a review like this was necessary in order to sort of push back against, you know, essentially what would be create a madness or reaper madness. Right. I mean, it was happening all over again, just like it will the next time somebody discovers a plant that helps people. Right, um, right. 
Uh, and I'm trying to like uh, you mentioning that makes me want to want to go back and look at Carl Hart's. Um, yeah, I had a note here to ask about yeah. ask about Carl Hart because he's one of the he's pretty good. I've watched I've read his book and I watched him on YouTube and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. And and he he points out really that uh, he one of his statistics was something like eighty percent of people who try drugs don't become addicted to that drug, which is like a good point based on you know what everybody's uh, perception of you know even right. people that have tried cocaine most of them and that's considered a hard drug that you get addicted to uh didn't end up getting addicted to it so right it's really a I mean, hysteria it, around it yeah it really does and um people people in the field of uh drug treatment um come with differing views but a lot of that hysteria has leaked over in into that field and it's um it's sad because it doesn't represent what the science is telling us it's just um this sort of um uh, emotional reaction to the idea that uh somebody's tried a drug and now it's going to destroy their lives inevitably Right. When it, it strangles, you know, strangles the research. And, you know, I've been in, oh, yeah. mentioned the, you know, addiction treatment and, and drug treatment centers. Like it's hard uh, in some ways to take, you know, I've been in public testimony and it's hard to take their opinions objectively because they're sort of in the business of, you know, treating those types of people. And, you know, maybe it's a pessimistic right. view, but it's also the same way with law enforcement. I mean, they get the most uh, sort of civil uh, asset forfeiture and funding to go after cannabis. Uh, if cannabis is legalized, then they're no longer have that revenue stream. So it's always, you know, I think when it, you always want to try to be as objective as you can. And but this drug hysteria and just sort of banning and then asking questions later, it not only is is bad in general for public, but it, it prohibits the science from proceeding. So we can't even really yes. that. It, it yep. sets up so many barriers. And I mean, people think that, um, I will uh, um, give people the benefit of the doubt, even though I know that some, some uh, individuals, you know, like Scott Gottlieb and people like that are acting questionably or have acted questionably. Um, knowing the science, I think a lot of people really believe that they are doing good by um, just banning first and asking questions later. And they don't see mm -hmm. the, like, you know, they don't see the bigger picture and, and Kratom is a great example of that. So if you, if you look at the, so the work we did in 2018 kind of followed a paper we did in 2015 and it's just, um, I have to say, there's nothing new in it, right? Like, so if we look through our 2018 paper, it was just this collation and, and systematic review of 13 quality studies um, from both uh, the East and the West, looking at the consequences, good or bad, of, of Kratom mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. And what we found was pretty much what everybody else has found. And that's, you don't see that kind of replication in the literature, um, often like mm -hmm. it's just been so consistent um henningfield's group there was that uh newer paper by uh co i think was the first author and oliver grunman and um Veltzi and garcia and everybody's finding the same things when they talk about creative use in in people um and so what we found across these studies in very different populations was that people are using it for 
uh, harm reduction purposes, um, getting off of opioids and um, dealing with the withdrawal of, of classical opioids mm-hmm. um, and uh, improving mood and uh, anxiety symptoms, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and, and treating their pain. And, and these are the things that have been found in every observational study, every survey that is, um, a, you know, a, a valid and um, h- a higher quality um, piece of work. The fact that the studies are from different, you know, regions of the world and different sort of funded by different groups, done by different researchers, and um, the, the findings generally follow along the same path. Like it, it just, uh, it, it's, I think it solidifies a little bit further that this is at, at the very least that, um, humans are doing this because it is provides some functional benefit to them. This is what they say it is. We need to go in more. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all like the, uh, we, every time there's a new study, um, and you know, we are sort of stuck at the level of either, um, uh, sort of basic science or um, observational studies until until the clinical trials are done, um, but uh, that's been a, an interesting point of contention, right? Because on one hand, the folks who are coming out and warning people about kratom use are citing a lot of case studies and toxicology studies that have all of these limitations. And on the other hand, they're saying, we won't know until we get clinical trials. And there's a little bit of truth to that. Like if there are long-term and significant rare health risks of this plant uh, for humans or certain people based on um, pre-existing conditions or genetic makeup or whatever, we won't know uh, until those come out. But that doesn't mean we know nothing. Right. And it also doesn't mean that, you know, case studies where you pick somebody with uh, uh, liver damage and check to see whether they've used Kratom and then publish it um, doesn't mean that those tell the story either. So it, it's right. Yeah. Exception isn't the rule. Right. Right. And, and there are reasons why these studies are published. Like, you know, you know, very well, like um, first of all, people have to publish to, to advance their careers uh-huh. Um, and Kratom's um, not hard to publish on because it's a, a topic of interest for a lot of um, journals. Like the case studies that are often col- you know, pulled together and cited as reason for concern, um, it's not like they're not, uh, they don't matter at all. But you could make the case that, I don't know, gummy bears uh, cause liver damage if you want Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or milk. They all had milk in their refrigerator. I think there was a so. black licorice uh, instance a couple of weeks ago where a guy just ate nothing but black licorice for three weeks and died. Um, Jeez Louise! Yeah, that uh, was pretty Wild crazy. Time. <laughs> wow, that was a party. But uh, he got it for bad. the kids Jesus. for Halloween, I guess. I, and I have a couple of questions that relate back to the drug hysteria. Now you. You looked at studies so, that so go the, all the way back to the 60s, I think. Our search criteria did that, but I'm not sure what the earliest one was. I don't think it was. Okay. The yeah, the earliest I noticed in the references was 95. Was that because they got redundant, like the older you got? There's one really highly cited one from the from like 75. Uh, you know, I don't want to say the name of the researcher. I mean, it was, a, you know, it was, a, it was an early study on kratom use in humans in Thailand. 
Mm. And um, it's it's very highly cited just because there's so little available. But if you look at the study, they don't really say what they did. Mm -hmm. And then they draw conclusions about um, harm that are much more correlational than anything else. And they had chosen a group of heavy drug users. So uh, you, you can't glean that much information from it. We had to drop two studies like that, I think. So was the sort of drug hysteria already there in those early studies or or did that come along maybe like after the Nixon administration, the drug war started or or had it already been there? Because, I mean, the reefer madness goes all the way back to the 30s. Yeah, it's hard to say because there's so many reasons for um, oppressing a group that uses plants or drugs for uh you know, I was just reading something today about the Spanish Inquisition and how um, people who used uh, magic mushrooms or, you know, psilocybin were killed uh, for that practice. You know, oh, wow. um, so it, it's just it's always been a thing. I, I'm not sure that those studies were impacted so much by um, drug hysteria. I, okay. I guess I wouldn't know. But but they certainly drew conclusions that were not supported by the data they had. And there's always uh, like some element of tribalism, like in group versus yeah. out group, you know, people favor their historical drug of choice while they don't uh, appreciate it, you know, an out group. It's, it's, it's almost, you know, something unavoidable with, with humans. Yeah. I mean, how many people are sitting around drinking whiskey and calling Kratom dangerous as hell? I right. mean, it's, you know, that that's always a part of it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I did. I did this webinar today. It was like the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry. I had no business being on it, but <laughs> it, <laughs> it was really. They were talking about kratom, so I just listened in, and basically, you know, it was like uh, the questions were, "How soon do I uh, introduce uh, buprenorphine as a treatment for oh, uh, kratom addiction?" So, I mean, I guess, you know, like even vice versa, people use Kratom to get off opiates, but that, and and it was psychiatry, so I guess they use uh, uh, medicine to treat things uh, more than maybe like psychology. You know, for addiction in general, did, would like a social scientist or a clinical psychologist try to look into like behaviors or past trauma, like more so than uh, buprenorphine? I'm glad I'm really glad you asked this question because yeah. um, there's so much confusion about uh, who who's who and who knows what. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I'm a I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm studying this because I have an interest in um, substance use, harmful substance use, helpful substance use, whatever. And so, um, you know, P PhDs are trained in science. So we can look at the literature and and we can um, conduct research. Um, and and uh, so MDs may or may not be trained in science. Um, a lot of the time MDs are trained enough to read some of the literature, but don't know it well. Other MDs are scientists who, um, who do their own research. So it's really hard to tell who knows what. As a clinician, I can't really legally um, do much in the way of uh, recommending Kratom. I can, I can talk with people who are already considering it. Um, I can bring it up to people and try to help them work through things. But um, 
so my science is very separate from my uh, clinical work, except that they inform each other. Whereas MDs are always, you know, they're, they're trained in the uh, um, prescribing the pharmaceuticals that are supported by the system. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing in any, uh, in general, but it certainly means that when they hear Kratom, they'll be alarmed. And when they hear buprenorphine, they'll be excited. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because I, I think they're very similar and uh, each has its um, benefits and negative consequences. Uh, Section three, one, uh, of the paper. I'm going through sections where I wrote questions, but it talks oh, about cool. substitution. Um, you know, you know, some people would say you're just replacing one addiction with the other. This is kind of the same as the last question, yeah. really, but I mean, is there something to that argument since Kratom can be habit-forming? We've seen a lot of people that have uh you know wanted to get off a of kratom and um it's is there anything in any of these that show you know maybe how, how many people have become addicted to kratom that have tried it is it is would it be like carl hart's percentage would it be like 10 percent or or something like that or or is there even anything uh to show that boy that's a really good question i i think we know more about um, the consequences of being dependent on Kratom than we do about the percentage of people who will become dependent on it. What we know is that Kratom dependence is for a, for a small percentage of the population is a big deal. Um, but if you look at the studies we've got now, they suggest that um, even people who are dependent on Kratom um, are functioning relatively well socially. They're maintaining their jobs. Um, and they, you know, and if they have to withdraw from it, it's relative to classical opioids. It's, uh, it's, um, easy. Um, maybe that's not the right word to use because those people who do have a really difficult time with it exist, but the withdrawal period is shorter. The symptoms are, um, less severe. Um, it's a, it's a relatively forgiving plant. So, you're going to have risks and benefits with anything. Um, and the, the benefit to risk profile is pretty good for Kratom relative to the, um, the classical opioids. Yeah. And, and there was just a story about a, a U.S. customs official who was uh, stealing from people. He probably stole about 10 grand in a year or something like that. Um, <laughs> And his uh, lawyer claimed that he was addicted to Kratom and he was feeding his addiction, Um, which they didn't say anything about Kratom in the initial reports when he got arrested uh, and they caught him stealing. But uh, after a year, his uh, lawyer is now saying, oh, he had this Kratom addiction. And I mean, despite the fact that uh, lots of U.S. Customs officers have been caught stealing from travelers, um, do you ever see an, a kratom addiction that that can be proven that actually has somebody acting like an opiate addict, like uh, you know, maybe stealing and and things like that, or or do you think that those people are just saying I'm addicted to kratom because one of the roadblocks with illegal drugs is people can't admit to the drug that they're hooked on. 
Yeah, I've, I work with a lot of people who are hooked on a lot of drugs, and I've never, with um, Kratom, I've never seen that, and I've never seen evidence of it. I'm sure, I'm sure it could happen. Yeah, but um, it's so rare as to not exist in the scientific literature, to my knowledge. Yeah. So my guess about any given person would be that it's much more likely that um, they were going to steal anyway. But um, yeah, I guess you never know. I just don't see any evidence that uh, uh, kratom dependence operates like that. Yeah, you, you just don't see people um, give you know stealing everything just to keep the withdrawal away. You see them going to bed for a few days. Speaking of withdrawal, um, I thought one of the most interesting sort of sentences or takeaways that I had pulled out of this was towards the end in the discussion. Um, when it was talking about data from North America indicating that higher education is associated with less incidence of withdrawal, but it was almost the, the opposite. I think in Malaysia, individuals with higher education had difficulty abstaining from creatum than less educated people. And I was just curious, you know, is that something that jumped out at you guys? Um, I had never, I had never seen a link between those two things before. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I wasn't sure what to make of that. And I think it has less to do with the plant than it does with the circumstances of use. So it's really hard to say. People people in uh, in Malaysia are are using kratom under very different circumstances. Here, you're buying it on the internet, and um, it's relatively expensive for a lot of people. Um, you know, in a lot yeah. of cases, or getting it at smoke shops, and uh, it's super hard to draw any causal conclusions, right? And there was, you know, some um, some gender differences there as well, yeah. but those are generally, you know, played out across uh, uh, addictive drugs, more or less. That there is some sort of dimorphism between the sexes. Yeah, yeah, good, good point. And and also, um, up until more recently, um, most of the most of the people who were studied in these studies are uh, males. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was I was going to ask why that is. Is it, is it more of a, a traditional thing for men to drink Kratom in, in, say, Malaysia? I believe that's a that is part of the culture. That mm. um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Men men are more likely to be um, openly using a number of substances. I think in the East, I think there's a bigger difference there. And I think openly too is a as a key difference there, and that men probably feel more comfortable acknowledging or admitting yes. admitting in a public setting that they are doing that. Um, to, yes. that could be flushed out. Yep. But the cultural pressures are so much more powerful than um, the effects of the plant. I think in mm. some of these these correlational data that we have, um, so it's really difficult to um, to ascribe any result to um, particular effects of Kratom. Mood-related use, it said uh, being age 41 or older, being married, having a bachelor's degree, and earning 75000 or more. Four out of five ain't bad for me. We're uh, <laughs> negatively associated with mood-related use. Is, is there any reason for, for that? Men have, uh, especially men who are being studied um, for substance use, have fewer mood problems than women. Men uh, in general, and I'm, this is a very general statement, but it does tend to um, operate throughout the literature on drug use. 
men tend to use for reasons like uh, stimulation, celebration, um, other, other things like that, whereas women will use more for mood-related uh, problems. And that's not to say that men don't also use substances to alleviate mood problems. It's just that it's more common in women. And I think um, that just goes with women also ha- having more um, problems with depression. The rates are higher in women. Uh, and anxiety, at least at least as reported, anyway. Right. Uh, right. Women yeah. tend to report more depression and anxiety than men do, um, whereas a lot of a lot of men in, um, for instance, in substance use treatment, will report uh, trying to alleviate boredom and um, uh, and and also just sort of cultural factors. You know, uh, I you're you're uh speaking with us from pittsburgh and i came from a steel town in pennsylvania and i know that um back in the day a lot of guys used to go to work and then after their shift would go uh go to the bar straight to the bar yeah and that was part of the culture um Mm -hmm. so i think things like that really play a big role in it and it's it's hard to pull apart um gender differences I was actually, when I was looking at this, I was thinking about my grandfather who went to the pub all the time. And, you know, my grandma stayed home and complained about him yeah. to my mom. <laughs> but it was just, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, my dad used to take me down there and it was all old men. There, were, there weren't old many old ladies in there. That's so it. it was, it's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the, kind of kind of goes along the lines. And, and the same thing with, like, it used to be, uh, you know, only a few decades ago, it was like... Uh, uh, stigmatized for women to smoke and and it's also said um sedation has been reported by very low percentages um i don't know if that was in reference to a particular study but i i guess that might just be in general because mostly people get energized with low amounts of kratom and general i was gonna ask if there's a difference between how people use it in the u.s and in asia because i think it seems like people use more kratom here like in powder form rather than drinking as a tea yeah i think we you know we've got sort of these uh we've got the powder and then they've got the uh tinctures and the you know the um sort of higher alkaloid stuff here um because it started coming over in when like 2000 it started or so uh and uh whereas culturally at least as from what i've read um it was chewed as leaves um or is chewed as leaves in uh in thailand and malaysia and so i think um there's a there's a higher chance of being sedated by these stronger uh concoctions that we have mm-hmm. here um relative to to the reported cultural use in uh in Thailand. I've never tried the chewed leaf approach. It, it just seems like even, even that and thinking about with Coca, like it just doesn't. It, and then, and then, you know, I'm a tobacco user too. Uh, so I don't know, maybe I just have already picked a plan. I want to put in my lip and, and just haven't tried it. <laughs> <afraid of it. laughs> it seems difficult, doesn't it? Like, uh, yeah. well, I don't know how that would work really. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Do, it. do they, do you see uh, lots of uh, evidence of smoking or vaping? It, it does say that in the introduction. No. Uh, yeah. Very little. Um, I know that it, uh, it is possible to do. I've not tried it. <laughs> I, I'd imagine it would be rough, but, yeah. um, I, I haven't seen much evidence of it. And especially because it's so like anybody you talk to here, who's using it, is getting it through these highly processed um, 
mm-hmm. ways, right? So we're getting yeah. powder and you know they're maybe making tea out of it, but a lot of people are just uh, doing the toss and wash uh, where you just uh, drink it down. And yeah. so I think I think that's leading to a lot of differences in the effects of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it, I, not a lot of uh, terpenes in kratom that I'm aware of either, so it probably doesn't taste mm-hmm. that great. Oh, <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm think. I mean, a lot of people report constipation, but I, I'm pretty convinced that that's a physical thing of actually swallowing wet powder and uh, oh, creating like cement in your stomach. Because <laughs> I, I've, I've only ever made tea out of it, and I've never had any of those types of issues. I mean, in general, if you look at all the literature, uh, uh, you know, just talking to people and what they've experienced, um, it really is just sort of a, um, well, it is what it is a partial opioid agonist. So there may be some constipation, but it won't be like taking Percocet. Um, and there may be some withdrawal, but it's not going to be like if you quit heroin. So it's, it's really, it offers the potential for pain relief and other benefits. Um, but you don't, you, you just don't see the level of side effects that you would get with um, classical opioids. You certainly don't see the respiratory depression, which may right. be why all of this politicization has gone on. Um, mm-hmm. This is a perfect substance to make into a pharmaceutical. And, and I think that's probably got a lot to do with why, um, why false narratives are being pushed. Yeah. And then at the, from the federal level, now a battleground and state by state levels and and going down to the local level, like there's certainly um, some well-capitalized motivation that that's making all this happening. Right. It's not, it's not just coming from the goodwill of good Samaritans out there uh, really concerned about it. Yeah. Right. It's really odd. And I don't think, I don't know what you think, but I, uh, people who are pushing this narrative that uh, Kratom's deadly. And if you take it, you know, you're really risking your life. Maybe there are some risks. Yeah. Think about it. But I think they're eliciting drug hysteria for other reasons. It just doesn't make sense that uh, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's not, you know, there's not piles of bodies stacking up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I don't know if we, if you got into this, but it's sort of back at the beginning in your, in your search strategy, I thought that you guys had pulled together a really good set of, of search terms, you know, using synonyms and going in a, in a bunch of, uh, you have amphetamines and also alcohol, tobacco, opiates. I thought that was a really good set. And I was just curious, have you, um, you know, have you since ran these searches again? And then maybe there would be something to indicate why there's increased pressure uh, for the legislation compared to what it was in 17. That's a really interesting point. We have not, uh, I certainly have not. It's, and it's, it's really tough to say. I mean, I, you know, it seems obvious at some point that um, somebody could benefit from this being made into a pharmaceutical and they want to eliminate competition but I don't have any evidence of that. And um, maybe it would be interesting to run those search terms again. It's a good point. So I had, a, I had another question about um, uh, withdrawal. It said um, the rate of withdrawal varies from 9% to 73%. Yeah. When we talk about withdrawal, is there a, like a standard definition of that, or can it mean anything from... I'm a little irritable to I'm um, having migraines and vomiting. 
Well, I I think uh, both are true. So you can yeah. you can define it in a way um, that's reliable and valid. Um, there's actually a kratom withdrawal scale, and I can't remember who the uh, authors of that were. I think it was uh, Sangam, and, and the severity can vary quite a bit, um, mm-hmm. and it includes cravings and uh, fatigue and um, insomnia and mood problems right. and you know the the nausea and physical sickness, but it depends. And so you get studies like um, these toxicology studies where they'll take people who called into a hotline and um, say, okay, well you took Kratom and you're reporting irritability. So that's, that must be, or you, um, you know, they'll do a study and it's like, oh, you stopped Kratom three days ago and now you're irritable. Um, But if you want to be more um, rigorous about it, you would pull together uh, the symptoms that tend to cluster when you when you speak to people who have used a, a large amount and then quit, and you usually get the same types of things. Um, so it's tough to say, like, and it does depend on dosing and um, where they are uh, during the you know in the in the withdrawal course as well. And there's got to be some element of culture playing into that as well, because, you know, you'll hear around the office all the time, oh, you know, I'm withdrawing from my caffeine or I can't get my work done until the caffeine's there, right? And so are we counting that as official withdrawal? Um, Maybe they are irritable, but, you know, it's not, uh, you know, you're not waking up in a puddle of sweat like you would maybe if you were cold turkey trying to quit heroin. Totally. I mean, and so you bring up a couple of good points there. How much is expectation? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, sort of placebo, and the, and the placebo there is is a real interesting one to me. You know, I think it's almost in some ways we can be with cannabis like a self fulfilling prophecy, right? So mm-hmm. by drawing attention to the potential for withdrawal, are you actually inducing a more severe withdrawal? Um, right. It's it's certainly possible. Um, so you know, we got to be that is where I think. Elements of drug hysteria, particularly unchecked, can lead to more damage than perhaps the drug even itself. Yes. Yeah, I, to- I totally agree with that because people are looking for it, and so they're going to find it. The The issue of hallucinations uh, was in here. Um, are there instances where Kratom directly caused hallucinations, or is this in conjunction with, like, exhaustion or lack of sleep or maybe uh, multi-substance use? So that's a really good question. I want to – maybe we have more data on that than most of the things that I talk about. Um, hallucinations and delusions are something that were talked about early on in this politicization of Kratom and um, there's no evidence for it. Now there are some interesting visual changes that would, I mean, in psychiatry you would classify them as illusions, Mm -hmm. but they actually just make stuff look cooler, I guess. Um, (laughs) But um, a lot of the, earlier studies on Kratom were with people who are um, potentially psychotic to begin with and also using Kratom. So um, there's no evidence that Kratom causes hallucinations. Not that I would suggest that it can't. I would just say that like of all of the studies on human beings who take Kratom, there's no, um, there's no good evidence that it does. And um, 
Darshan Singh has published on this. Um, we published a paper a little while back that looked at psychosis. Yeah. Um, in creative users one. and just found nothing. Yeah. Um, so I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I find it interesting that the effects that it can have though on your eyes and your visual way in a way that yeah. uh, at least I've never experienced with, you know, like a hydrocodone or an oxycodone or heard people describe, but like, you know, generally if you take too much kratom you get the wobbles and your eyes in some ways like sort of lose focus in the periphery and unlike it's unlike anything you know any other drug that i could really make an analogy to and i don't know why you know it's just interesting that that happens it's very interesting and and i like the fact that you you know you pointed out that it doesn't occur with classical opioids and so that gives us an idea of the number of different things that are going on, maybe with serotonin or, you know, other systems um, that haven't been explored particularly. I've heard it. um, I've heard uh, the Kratom visual effects described as um, similar to psilocybin before it really kicks in. I thought that that was interesting. Uh And, and there's almost a, you know, there, there is a certain amount of consciousness expansion associated with Kratom. Um, it's small, but it is notable. And a lot of people have pointed out that music sounds um, a bit better or food tastes better or um, uh, visual effects are more interesting. Um, hmm. So it certainly, I don't, I don't know much about the pharmacology, but um it certainly indicates that things are going on that are not with classical opioids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that I've, uh, that the acuity in hearing and sort of like a, a higher sensitivity to hearing or like a mm. lower um, uh, threshold, attention threshold is, is similar across the board. But the, the, I think, you know, perplexes me. And I think it does, it does draw attention to the fact that they are, you know, somewhat same, but different and some, and different Mm -hmm. in ways that are are significant physiologically. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's a super, and you know, that's what's, there are a lot of things that are interesting about it. Most notably it's utility, like getting people off of opioids and maybe saving lives, but, um, but things like, things like this, things like uh, a different uh, sensory experience. That's, that's fascinating stuff. Case studies present a rather low level of evidence due to overrepresentation of extreme events. Um, this is talking mm. about case studies versus. Has there been, on the other hand, any um, studies with uh, groups of people that showed a overall negative mental health outcome? Because I know that Darshan Singh study you mentioned. He there. It, it, uh, the couple of guys who had psychosis probably are, it wasn't a bigger percentage than would have anyway without the right. Kratom. So has there been anything like in this, in your review or anywhere else that showed that, uh, a, you know, maybe like an overall negative mental health outcome? I guess, I guess you could say that among people who begin using it um, and, and have a, a great deal of difficulty putting it down and who go into withdrawal. Yeah. They'll, they'll become irritable and angry and um, sad and it'll, it'll yeah. have a disruptive mood effect if you get hooked on it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's worth 
noting. It's not uh, it's it's not of no risk. Yeah. But other than um a Kratom use disorder, which I suppose is a thing that's possible, uh and, and we do see um indications consistent with that. Um I haven't seen anything that would indicate that it's causing negative mental health effects just by being used um, here and there. Because the thing I think about is a, a lot of people, they say that there's a term addictive personality, and I don't know how well that goes with the science, but is it that you know a lot of people are already uh, addicted to opioids, they switch to Kratom, and they might develop a you know a bad habit with kratom as well. Is that is it just something that they m- might have to address some other way, like uh, you know maybe like uh, childhood trauma or or something like that that they would have to address and not necessarily dependent on whatever substance they're hooked on. Absolutely, like yeah. I think you you hit the nail on the head there. Um, Kratom as a harm reduction tool is yeah. super useful, but you're assuming that people are maybe hooked on, uh, you know, Percocet or heroin. Um, and so then being hooked on Kratom is, is uh, a godsend because people get their lives back yeah. and maybe don't die of uh, an overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, it doesn't, deal with the underlying issue if people people with tra- childhood trauma and, and other um you know poverty and just some of the some of the um socioeconomic problems people have like it, it puts them at risk for trying to alter their mood in any way they can and anybody who's in that situation could um get dependent on kratom it just it looks like uh, it doesn't happen particularly easily. And it also looks like for most people, and it also looks like when it does happen, it's not the end of the world. So yeah, uh, right. you know, what are people replacing alcohol with? Because alcohol is pretty deadly if, if you get hooked. Right. So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the variability there, even, even beyond the socioeconomic factors, you know, variability in dopamine sensitivities or receptor profiles, mm-hmm. like there's just a number of, you know, from multiple angles, a number of facets that can go into that. So people say, oh, I got the, you know, the addiction gene from my dad. Oh, it's sort of like, well, you know, you're conflating, you know, probably yeah. 20 or 30 different variables that uh, what's sort of like for could contribute to that. But, you know, to totally. say it's one thing is, is tough. Some, some people just feel shitty, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really the, the science you can, you can write this down. The science is that some people feel shitty most of the time. <laughs> and those people want to do a lot of different things to try to fix it. And some yeah. of those things are harmful. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but so, so it is, I mean, just getting back to the original question. Yeah. I mean, addressing that is the point, but I think that's where a lot of um, addiction counselors go wrong. They think that there's one way to deal with it. Um, they think, well, you're going to be abstinent from it and you're going to um, get therapy to heal your trauma. And that's great, but it doesn't work for everybody. And so for those people who are not going to be abstinent, and who are not going to get therapy or who, who therapy doesn't work for or medications don't work for, um, what's wrong with um, reducing the harm and, right. and increasing their likelihood of surviving? Yeah. 
And this perfectly leads into my Marky Smith question. <laughs> oh, I was wondering when that was coming. <laughs> if, I'm glad I waited till the end. If Marky Smith <laughs> had discovered Kratom instead of alcohol and speed, would he would he have written all that great music? Uh he he would have used it once and gone back to the alcohol and speed. Yeah, that great <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's I right. that's my answer. Yeah. Too. I think he's one of those people who felt miserable yeah. and did whatever he could to deal with it. Um, and we're we're fortunate that he survived as long as he did. He was so pleasant in all his interviews. Was, was he really miserable? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he try to put out a cigarette on one of the reporters? Uh, I think he did. Probably. So, Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, glad you could join us. A lot of fun talking to you. Thanks, John. It was really good to be here. I apologize for the initial uh, miscue there. Thanks a lot for yeah. the discussion. Thank you, Dr. Mark Schwager and Dr. Jonathan Mache. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is called Moon Runner. The Kratom Science Podcast is written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Like, subscribe, give us five stars, and take care.